Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. But what's really fascinating about this thing called money is that money plays this really, really interesting role in our culture. A really fascinating role in our culture. Money is like a warm pillow of safety for us. For, for many of us and in and, and our culture in general, money plays this safe space that we, if we just had X amount more than what we have now, we would be comfortable. If, if we had just a little bit more here, we would actually be safe and we would not have to worry about anything. It, it plays this sort of security blanket, so to speak, in our culture. It helps to ease some of our anxieties and some of our fears. Money also equals power and speech. That, that the more money we have, the more power we have. The more money we have, the more our voice matters, not only in the political realm, but even within other social organizational spheres. Because however much you give means that you matter more, that your voice carries more weight than everyone else. And on the converse, the less you have, or the less that you give, or the less that you, you support with your finances, the smaller your voice is. This plays a big role in our political scene right now with the passage of Citizens United and that, that Supreme Court case. All of that, more money equals more of a voice. More money equals more free speech. More money equals more, more, more. That we somehow matter more. The other thing that might be the most fascinating one for me is in many ways, money has become our great savior. That money has become the thing that is going to rescue us. Money is going to be the thing that pulls us out from where we are so that we can live a better life. That money will somehow solve all of our biggest problems in our lives. I think about it a lot. Like, what if someone were to give me a million dollars, or or what if I were to just win the lottery, right? And not, not like the big lottery, not the Powerball lottery, where I, somehow I get all like, I don't know, 12 numbers, I don't know how many there are, and the Powerball, right? And you walk away with like $3 billion. I'm not talking that lottery, because that's never going to happen, right? But what if for some reason I was to just land a million dollars? Like, that would solve everything. Right? I, I think about it. I, every so often I have those little daydreams of like, what would happen if somebody gave me a million dollars? Immediately, my mind goes to student loan debt, gone, boom. <laughs> I see all your heads nodding. Yeah, that's right. Student loan debt, gone in one fell swoop. What would I do with an extra five, six hundred, seven hundred dollars a month because I'm not paying off a student loan or two? Or in my case, that will be coming due very shortly, right? Like, what would I do with all of that extra money? Oh, and then I would have more to just invest so that I could just live off the interest, right? Like you just live off the interest, of just a normal middle-class lifestyle, but never 
have to worry ever again. Every so often, I daydream about that. I, I daydream about, well, what if it were $2 million? I, I, could, I, could, I could not only pay off all my debt and, and live comfortably, not having to worry about a thing, but also then I could like start a foundation or something like that, right? And then I, I could do something really, really awesome with all of this extra money to like start new churches or to like help other countries with like, like developmental needs and desires and hopes and dreams and just the amount of things that could happen. I think a lot of us sit in that daydream every so often. That what if? That what if? What if it were to come? What if it were to happen? Uh, ideas and dreams are the reason why so many people fall into these financial schemes. Right? They're, they're the reason why so many people fall victim and fall prey to that email from the prince from Liberia that all of a sudden you have $43 million just waiting for you if only you would respond to this email and give them your bank account. So many people literally day in and day out fall victim to those sorts of schemes. And I think it's because we get wrapped up in the dreams of what if, what if, what if. In fact, I have family members that have fallen victim to these sorts of schemes, these sorts of ideas where they have literally invested tens of thousands of dollars into some sort of like monetary scheme where if you just give $10,000 in just a few short months or in a few short years, something is going to happen economically and all of a sudden you're going to have this massive windfall. I mean, massive windfall. And they have been literally waiting for this to happen, for that windfall to come, not for months, not for a year, not for two or three or four, but five years. And every single time we get together, it's, it's going to happen soon. It's going to happen soon. This happened in the news, and now this thing is going to flip. It's coming soon. It's coming it's coming, it's coming, and all of our dreams, all of our hopes, all of our desires are going to happen. This is a once-in-a-generation opportunity. And you sit back and you listen, and you think, oh, oh, the dreams and the desires of financial security, the dreams and the desires that everything is going to be solved, that all of our biggest problems are going to be met if only we had this much money. Money has a really strange control over our desires, over our dreams, over our decisions, and our imaginations, which can trap us in a cage of our own creation, they can trap us in a cage of our own doing. There's this really funny video. It's called The Black Hole. And it's a video that was created in Europe that kind of talks about this. And I, I want you guys to take a look at this, this The Black Hole.
much is enough? Right? How much is enough? I love his face, right, as he bites into that Snickers bar. That look of desire, that look of, oh, what's next? And as he notices the safe, the sweat that begins to pour from his face as he moves closer and closer and closer, how much is enough? It's so easy for us to get trapped inside of a cage of our own making because of our desires, because of our dreams, because of our imaginations. We get trapped. But stewardship, stewardship of our money and possessions becomes the story of our lives. Our stewardship of our money and possessions become the story of our lives. This is the main idea of what we have been talking about over the course of these past three weeks. And this is why Jesus talked about money more than anything else in Scripture except the kingdom of God. He talked about money more than prayer. He talked about money more than heaven. He talked about money more than hell. He talked about money more than love. He talked about money more than anything else except for the kingdom of God. And this is where you cue Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. <laughs> money is a trap that surrounds us, that holds us, that puts us in a cage if we're, not care, if we're not careful. There's this great sequence of stories in Luke chapter 18 that kind of highlight all of this for us, that is a really, really good like, like bow on the entirety of what we have been talking about. It, it takes place in Luke chapter 18, and it, it kind of wraps up really, really well the entirety of what we've been talking about. Now, Luke chapter 18 starts like this in verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what's really fascinating about how this story starts, that question being the very initial thing, is that this is the exact same question that took place eight chapters earlier. At the very beginning of the story of the Great Samaritan. Here is how it begins. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Hold on to this phrase. Hold on to this chapter, hold on to that story, and hold it in tension with everything that we're going to talk about the rest of the morning. What's really fascinating about this is Jesus's response. I can almost see Jesus being just kind of exasperated, right? He's like, have I not answered this before? It's the exact same question. Was I not clear enough? You, actually, the, the guy before, the, the man that came, the teacher of the law that asked this question, actually answered the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the man responds, love God, love people. And Jesus says, you got it. That's it. That's all you got to do to inherit eternal life is love God and love people. Way to go, right? The man in the Good Samaritan story continues on to say, well... He tries to justify himself, but what does it mean? Who is my neighbor, right? He continues down that track. 
what's really fascinating here is that Jesus is kind of exasperated with this. And he, he kept this man in this, in this chapter, in chapter 18, the rich young ruler has said, but I've, Jesus responds and actually answers the question. Jesus says, all you got to do is basically the Ten Commandments. If, if love God, love people was too complicated, let's just go back to the law. Let's go back straight to the commands. He says, don't commit adultery. Don't murder anybody. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the man responds, great. I've been doing all that since I was a boy. I've been doing this my entire life. I have kept the law. I am a good person. And Jesus says, ah, but you still lack one thing. There's one thing left, one thing left for you to do. Go and sell everything that you have and give it away to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And the man became very, very sad, very sad. What I find is the underlying Question that Jesus was asking this man in that response, in that response to sell everything that you have and give it away. I think Jesus' underlying question was, but do you really love people? Do you really love people? You've kept all of these laws since you were a boy. And that's what it means to love God, is following what it is that he tells us to do. But do you really love people? And not only do you really love people, but do you love them like you love yourself? Do you love people as you love yourself? And the man became very, very sad. And Jesus responds, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. In, in the movie and in the book, Fight Club, Tyler Durden says this. He says, the things you own end up owning you. The things you own end up owning you. It's so fascinating because here is this rich, young ruler, this man who is at the top of the food chain in this society and in this culture, and it's just asked of him, just give away this stuff. But he can't, because the things you own end up owning you. And the crowd becomes a little bit perplexed, a little bit anxious, a little bit nervous and scared about what is to happen next, because their response is, who can be saved? If this man who has been good, has been following the law his entire life, can't achieve or find or receive eternal life, then who? We're all screwed, right? Like, you can see it begin to murmur through this crowd that is around Jesus. As they begin to go, well, then, if it can't be him, this dude's not only rich, but he's powerful. He's at the top of the food chain. If, if he can't be saved, then who on earth can? The question begins to simmer and fester throughout the crowd to the point that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, like speaks up for almost everybody that's there and is like, Jesus, we did that, right? 
Like, what about us? Are we good? Like, we, we, we gave up everything to follow you. We left our homes and we left our businesses and we left our families to follow you. What about us? And Jesus is like, you good, you good, <laughs> right? And so you can see, like, even the disciples have this moment of fear of, like, well, if this guy can't make it, what about us? Can we make it too? Is it possible for us to even get into this kingdom of God, to achieve eternal life? The, score, the story kind of fast forwards a bit into verse 35, where Jesus begins to approach Jericho. And, and here's what I love. It says, a blind man was sitting by the roadside. Blind man was sitting by the roadside. Remember how we started by talking about how this sort of mirrors the good Samaritan? All of a sudden, Jesus begins to embody that story. It's no longer a parable. It's no longer a story. But here is Jesus finding someone destitute on the roadside. And instead of passing by, instead of walking by like the Levite and the priest, he takes on the role of the good Samaritan and actually takes care of the man. He performs a miracle here in that moment and restores his sight. So all of a sudden we have this idea of, no, 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 no. See, this isn't just a parable. This isn't just something that is, you know, to, to stir up controversy or to stir up the story. This is actually something that is very possible, a real-life scenario, a real-life situation that is happening in the here and now. Jesus, in the midst of this rich young ruler, leaving him completely confused, completely befuddled, completely dumbfounded, like, what am I going to do? Jesus then begins to walk. And we don't know what happened to that rich young ruler. We don't know where he went. We don't know if he continued to follow Jesus, to, to walk alongside of him, to actually see the embodiment of that good Samaritan parable in the flesh. We don't know if that's what he was actually witness to. And if it would have called back for him, maybe he was around earlier and he heard that teaching. And that's why he asked the question. It was because he didn't quite understand what was going on. We don't know, but I love the creativity of Luke. I love the creativity of the, the writers of Scripture and how they constantly are calling back, calling to things that had already happened, to things that Jesus had already said, things that had already been revealed to us, so that we make sure that we get it, that we understand exactly what's taking place here. And the man on the roadside, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he received his sight, and he was healed. And the people are still hanging on to that question. Who can be saved? Jesus never really answered that question. He left it hanging. Jesus' response to that question initially was, what is impossible for man is possible with God. And here's this Jesus who is God in the flesh, God incarnate. What is impossible for man is possible for God. 
Of course Jesus could do that. Of course Jesus could embody the story of the good Samaritan. Who then can be saved? What about us? Is it possible that we too can be saved? Or are we left with the same response that the crowd was? We're screwed. There's no hope. There's no possibility for us that we can be saved. But then Luke does something that is even more brilliant. I'm not kidding. I love how he puts these three pictures together. These three stories together. Because the very next verse, after after the, or the very next story, after Jesus restores the man's sight, just like, on the, like, just like the parable of the Good Samaritan, in comes Zacchaeus. Now, I, I grew up with, like, like in Sunday school, we learned all about all of the, like a lot of the stories, but we learned about the stories through song. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And it all had actions too, right? And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in a tree. Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, right? Like we would sing that over and over. And this is how we would actually memorize the stories of Scripture. And all I really knew about Zacchaeus was that he was a wee little man. That was it. I was like, oh, great. And he's a wee little man. And he climbed up in a sycamore tree because he wanted to see Jesus. Awesome. But behind that, not only was he a wee little man, but like Jewish culture and society is not harsh in the sense of, of, of some of the underprivileged people. Right? It wasn't super harsh. and In fact, people that were short would oftentimes be able to get into the front of a crowd so that they could see what was happening. They had, you know, stadium seating, but standing, right? Like, they would allow people to get up front. But Zacchaeus couldn't because Zacchaeus was not just a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He was a tax collector. He was considered to be a traitor, to society. He was considered to be the lowest of the low in Jewish culture, and there was no way anyone was going to let him get in front of them. This was, in some respects, their cultural payback. You steal from me? I'm not going to let you see Jesus. Uh-uh. No way. No how. And so he climbs up in a tree. And Jesus, seeing what Zacchaeus is doing, puts him in a place of honor and says, hey, come down. And, and don't just come down, but we're going to go eat a meal together. I'm going to share a meal with you. And the crowd's response, say, what? He is going to eat with a sinner? Like the, the, I, I believe the actual phrase was, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. In fact, just before that, it's a muttering they're muttering this. They're not proclaiming it. A mutter is like, he's going to be in the house with a sinner. Right? They're talking out of the side of their mouth to the person that's next to them about like, oh my goodness, can you believe what is going on here? This is just not right. Mm. 
I've never seen such a terrible thing in my life. I can't believe that Jesus would go do that. And not only that, but with Zacchaeus. Oh my goodness, that dude ripped me off. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I have overpaid my taxes because that little man, right? Like over and over and over, the crowd is muttering about how hated this man is. And Jesus goes to his house and they share a meal. They eat together. And, and when Zacchaeus shares a meal, like meals of this caliber were not small affairs. Not only would it have been Jesus and Zacchaeus, but it would have been all of Jesus' disciples, so all the 12, as well as probably a smattering of others that would have been invited into that space, as well as Zacchaeus' friends, right? Zacchaeus is like, oh, snap, I got Jesus. I got this dude that everybody is clamoring to see and hear. He probably had somebody with him who was like, dude, go round everybody up and have them meet at my place in an hour, and we're going to have a feast. Not only that, but, but, but go, not, not only go tell everybody, but also get everybody in my house, in my servants, all of, my, all, all of the people that are in my house to like start making a feast. Because Zacchaeus was a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy man. Tax collectors were wealthy people. Because not only did they help to collect the taxes that then would go to Rome, but they would not only skim off the top of what they gave back to Rome, but then they would overtax people so that then they could have more of them, like more money for themselves. They were super wealthy people, which is not one of the reasons why they were hated so much. So he had servants. He had so many people. He had a large, massive house that he was living in. And he was throwing the house party of the century, right? Because Jesus was coming to his house today for a meal. So as they're there, as they're sharing this meal, as they're talking, Zacchaeus, we, we have no idea what Zacchaeus and Jesus have talked about while they're together. It's just not recorded. It's not there. But we do know what Zacchaeus's response is. Zacchaeus responds to Jesus. He stood up. Not only does he respond to Jesus, but he responds to everybody in the entire room. And loudly, he says, look, Lord, here and now, here and now, right in this very moment, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. Half of everything that I have are going directly to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Not only is he going to help the poor in this moment, he is calling for restitution. Like anybody that I have stolen from, I'm going to give them back four times the amount. Restitution. This. Right here, Zacchaeus responds in a way vastly different than the rich young ruler. Two rich people juxtaposed right next to each other. The rich young ruler drops his head sad. And Zacchaeus says, half of everything that I have. And four times beyond what I have stolen from anybody will be given back to them. Who, the crowd asked, who then can be saved? Who? And Jesus' response to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house 
Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is a sinner. This is who is saved. This is a man who has everything and has everything going for him and yet gives generously. Not only does he pay restitution, but he gives generously half of everything that he has away. You see, we too are like Zacchaeus. We all have a choice. We all have a choice. Will we be ruled by our money, by our possessions, by our things? Or will we not? Dr. King said this. He said, every man or woman must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. Each and every one of us has a choice. Each and every one of us has an opportunity with what we do, with what we have. And some of us may say, like, I, 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 I just don't have very much. After rent, and which, believe me, after paying my rent, after buying food, after taking care of myself and my needs, I just don't have very much left to do anything with, let alone give anything away, let alone be generous. One of my favorite books is by Ernest Hemingway, and it's The Old Man in the Sea. And if you don't know this book, it's tiny, right? Like it's like 80 to 100 pages. However, it's a fascinating story of a Cuban fisherman who is out on the ocean, and he makes the greatest catch of his life, the greatest catch, the biggest tuna. And all he can begin to think about is the dreams of what it is going to do for his life when he brings it back, the fame and the financial windfall that will come because of what he will sell this giant fish for. And throughout the story, sharks begin to tear away at the meat, but he can't let it go. And to the peril of his own life. He can't let it go. And in the midst of the story, he says this. He says, now is not the time to think of what you do not have. Think of what you can do with what is there. As he comes nearer to shore with very little left of what it is that he originally had, all of his dreams changing, all of his desires and ideas about the future that he was going to be able to lead diminished and eroding and deteriorating. Now is not the time to think of what we do not have, but what we can do with what we do have. So when we sit in this space of wondering, like, I just don't have very much, but what can you do with what's left? What can you do with what you actually do have? We started an allowance. It's been kind of a start and stop sort of thing with Elliot as we've tried to figure out like, how to teach her about money and finances. And sometimes she's, she gets it. And, and other times she doesn't. And so we're like, okay, we need to stop this thing and we'll, we'll reevaluate and figure this whole thing out. But she's got three different jars. She's got a spend jar, she's got a save jar, and she's got a share jar. 
And this is kind of how we're teaching her a little bit time and time about how to, how to deal with money, like what you want to do with money. And we have this share jar, which is to go to other people. Like, like what do you want to do to help other people that's in your share jar? And we, we started to have a conversation, and she decided, you know what? I want to help the people at Tent City 5. And we're like, oh, that's pretty cool. All right. Uh, how do you want to help the people at Tent City 5? Uh, I don't know. So we started thinking and, and plotting and wondering, like, oh, well, she could probably buy something. Like, I, I'm sure she's got enough money in there, right? And so we start to, to fiddle through the, the, the share jar and notice that she has, like, three or four bucks, right? Like, not a whole lot of money in the share jar because she doesn't get a big allowance because she didn't need a lot of money. She's six, <laughs> right? And so we fiddle through and, like, okay. And so we, we go through the menu in a couple of weeks, and we're like, oh, it's taco night. She could totally buy the sour cream. She could buy enough sour cream for 40 to 60 people, right? Like basically two tubs of sour cream will be enough. And so I say, hey, Elliot, would you like to contribute the sour cream at Tent City 5? And she's like, yes, I would. And so we pull up the spreadsheet, right? Because we do almost everything through the Google Doc spreadsheet. That's how we do the meal planning kind of thing. And I say, okay, Elliot, type your name right next to the sour cream. And so she, on my phone, she's E L. L, because she's the hunt and peck, right? Because she has no idea how a keyboard works just yet. And she finishes Elliot, and then she's like, I need to add a panda. And so she adds the panda emoji right next to it, right? And it was this really awesome moment, like, oh, man, she's totally going to provide the sour cream. This is really, really cool. Because now is not the time to think of what we do have, but what we can do with what we do have. A few weeks passed by, and I was like, hey, Elliot, it's taco night. It's time to go to the store. And so I took her to the grocery store, and we, we pulled out all the money, and she said, Papa, you, you carry it. I don't want to lose it. And I said, okay. Okay, so I, I had it in my, my pocket, and we walk our way to the store, and I pick up some of the other stuff that we were providing that night, and, and we get to the sour cream section. I said, which sour cream do you want? She goes, that one. I was like, why do you want that one? It's big. I was like, okay. You think that's going to be enough? She goes, we need two. I was like, all right, let's get two. So we grabbed two and plenty, like it was plenty of sour cream, believe me, plenty of sour cream. And we make our way to the front and we do the self-checkout kiosk kind of thing. And I, I let her scan it. So she scans it and sets it on the, the, the weigh scale kind of thing. She scans another one, sets it on the weigh scale thing. And then I give her the money. I say, okay, honey, it's like $3.86. And so she puts the dollar bill into the slot. Next one, zzz, the next one, zzz, the next one, zzz. that's it. You still have a little bit of money left over. She's like, awesome. So we'll put it back in your share jar. And she was so excited. And that night when we showed up at, at Tent City, like I let her carry in the sour cream because this was what she was contributing. Because now is not the time to think of what we don't have, but what we do have. What can we do with the things that we do have? She was able to provide sour cream as a part of a meal for 40 to 60 people. And not just one meal, but probably somebody's lunch the next day. And then day after that. These are the things that are possible when we begin to think of what we can do with the little amount that we have left. Dr. Cornell West said this. In the end... Your life will not be measured by what you have, but by the fruit you bear. 
the life you live and the kind of love you have. Together, we have an opportunity to write a beautiful story. Our stewardship of our possessions and our money together can write the most beautiful story possible. What story are you writing? What story will you write? And what story are we together as a community able to write, not only here as a part of this interconnected community, but as a part of this neighborhood, as part of this city, and throughout the world? What story will we write? Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 Third Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.